Dear Father, thank you for the encouragement of a day when our room feels full and our hearts are full with your spirit. We know, Father, you've been here from long before we were here, working in this part of the city, working through this little church. And what a blessing it is, Father, to be included in that work. And over the last few years, Father, this little church has gone through some cycles of ups and downs. And we've seen, Father, the, the valleys and the mountains as we sang about in our, in our worship time. And uh, perhaps we're on one of those mountain climbs now, Father. Perhaps you're taking us somewhere that's going to be truly glorious, and we're encouraged by that. But, Father, let, her, let our uh, praise for you and, and our love for you and our devotion to you not turn on whether we're having a good day or a bad day, or whether we are happy with our circumstances or whether we are challenged by them. For, Father, you are turning all these things to good in your good timing and according to your good purpose and you're doing it because you love us and we have to take those good days and those bad days into account and understand father what you can do in each of them to our benefit and at the same time father we want to rejoice we want to thank you we want to enjoy the blessings that you're giving us but then again father as i'm mindful of our growth and of our opportunities to serve more i'm also mindful that with that comes great responsibility to serve you and to make the most of that, to care for those you send our way. And, Father, part of that is getting ready to serve them, to understand their needs and to be ready with a word and with the counsel of Scripture. And so I ask, Father, as we study today in chapter 1 of Ephesians, that you would be good to show us what we need to know so that we're better prepared, that we're workmen ready to do the work that you give us, that that includes not only understanding you, but, Father, also challenging ourselves to live up to what we know the word expects. That's our calling as a community here, Father. We do it together, for we cannot do it alone. We do it in your power, for we have none of our own. So, Father, give us that blessing today as we study in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, friends, we're back in Ephesians chapter 1. And I warned you as we got into chapter 1 that this was a diet of, of doctrine. It's the meat of the word. I want to make sure we have plenty of opportunity to get into the meat of it, to understand it. So I'm taking my time. And we're still going through it patiently. And we're in this extended discussion, actually in this extended sentence that Paul writes in chapter 1 from verse 3 through verse 14 that's centered on all of the grace that we have received from the Father, from Christ, and from the Spirit. And it's been a journey in heavy doctrine, but I hope it's also been a rewarding one. And when we think of grace, the word grace is often thrown around a lot, as we'd expect. God's favor, unmerited favor to us. God's unmerited favor is just a whole set of things. And as a result, I don't think you can talk about it really enough. Not if you're talking about it properly. Because you're never going to comprehend all that God's grace has accomplished for you. Certainly not this side of heaven. And therefore, in the meantime, it's good that we spend some time studying what the Bible has to say about the word grace. And I have found that the key to wrapping your head around God's grace is to separate the grace that we know from Christ in his death on the cross, that act of grace, separate that from all the other blessings that we are seeing from God's grace. For if you don't, you tend to just see grace always as Christ on the cross. And certainly it's the centrality of the message of grace, but it's not the sum of it. For example, last week we moved to studying Christ's work on our behalf, and what we found were some things that are in God's plan for us, that though they're centered on the cross, they move outward from the cross. For example, we know He atoned for our sin by His ransom paid for us on the cross, setting us free from slavery. That's the starting point. But then earlier in the chapter, we had heard that God's grace began long before we even were born, even before Christ died on the cross. 
Paul says the Father chose us even before our sin had been conceived, even before the foundations of the earth, to receive His grace. That's a different form of God's grace. Then we saw last week how God's grace in Christ grants to His children the capacity to comprehend the Word of God, the Word of Christ, and by the grace of Christ, then He can direct our steps in life so that we can live in the counsel of His will. Things that I think many of us just take for granted. We read the Bible, yeah, we read the Bible. But friends, wait a minute. He didn't have to do those things. That's grace. That's Him saying, even beyond saving you, I'm going to give you some things for now. If you've ever seen the armbands that people wear that says, what would Jesus do? They're not as popular now for some reason. It's like any other Christian fad. It kind of comes and goes. But remember when that was popular for a while? Well, if you read the Word and you listen to His counsel, then you would know what Jesus would do. You don't need to wonder anymore. It's available to you in the Word of God. So the grace of Christ moves beyond His death on the cross so that He can grant us a life that will please Him. So today what we're doing is we're moving forward from that point. That is, we've understood His death and we've understood His granting of wisdom and insight. And now we're going to look at more of what God's grace bestowed upon us through the work of Christ. And we pick up in the middle of Paul's impossibly long sentence in verses 3 through 14, right at verse 10. And Paul is giving a new work of grace now, something beyond what we've already talked about, which is found in Christ. So let's reread from verse 10 all the way now into verse 12. I started, uh, I ended at 10 last week. We're going to keep, go back into 10 and we're going to go through 12. Verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, in the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Now, if that doesn't sound sensible, don't worry. It's not easy to understand, in part because we're cutting into the middle and because of the way Paul writes the sentence. So we'll work through it. To put you back in context, we discussed last week what chapter 1, verse 10 was speaking about. And as you may remember, we learned that he's talking still in verse 10 about the Word of God as a a dispensation of grace. And we learned that the Word of God is God's grace to us in Christ for the purpose, as he says here, of God's administration of our lives. Now, friends, as I said last week, the word administration can also be translated management or dispensation. So we could say the Lord provided us with the Bible so he could dispense his grace into our daily lives. That is, by the word, he could manage us during the time we live on this earth in our sinful body in a fallen world. The enemy in the world and and even our own flesh are trying at all times to pull us away from God and against His will. And so, by the Word of God, you have this spiritual manager in your life who's there to defend you against those enemies and to guide you into righteousness. That's God's way of managing us for our own betterment in this period of time while we're awaiting the glory that is to come. So Paul goes to say that this management carries the church forward. You notice he says, until the fullness of the times, or you could say till the completion of the age. So friends, the Word of God manages us for a time. Once you escape this earth, once we've been resurrected into new bodies, or once we die and are present with the Lord, we no longer need the manager in the same way. We now will have a complete understanding of God, we'll have a complete understanding of His will. So at that point, you don't need to be managed, not in the same way. Your sin nature is no longer an enemy. 
You're always going to have the Word of God. That's not to say that the Word of God has no purpose anymore or that it goes away. No, it's still there and it will be eternally with us. But you won't be fighting against it anymore. You'll be in concert with it, in agreement with it. And of course, as I said last week, in order to gain the benefits of this administration in the meantime, what do you have to do? Well, you have to endeavor to read it. I mean, you don't know it. You can't do what it asks. And then secondly, having read it, you have to put it into practice. You have to act on it, right? Just like a human manager at your workplace. The Word of God can only help you if you listen to what it says and commit to following what it asks. Many believers, as you know, fail to hear the Word of God. They don't read it. They don't study it. They're not exposed to it. Maybe they're in churches that don't use it. But there are also a lot of believers who pay attention to it. They read it. They know something about it, but they don't heed it. It doesn't rule their life. It doesn't inform their decisions. As James warns, don't just be hearers of the Word. You've got to be doers of it, too. That's how the Word of God is your administrator or your manager. And it is a dispensation, a pouring out of grace. What a shame if we don't take advantage of it. And that's where we ended last week. So as we move now into the second half of verse 10, we never covered the last part of verse 10 and what it goes to next, of course. Now we find the next way in which Christ offers us grace. And Paul says Christ is at work to show us grace in summing up all things in himself. The Greek word for summing up is anakathelio. It can be used in a variety of ways. It can have subtle variations in meaning. But the idea is to bring something back together, to resolve it, to reconcile it, to sum it up. And the Bible says that Jesus, in his grace toward us, is going to sum up everything. So he's going to bring together everything in God's creation in heaven and in earth. So what does it mean that he's going to bring it all together? Well, first you have to ask, how did it all get divided? We have to go back to the beginning of where the divisions occurred, and then we get a better understanding of what the reconciliations will be. First, Adam sinned in the garden, and when he did, he brought the consequences of sin upon himself and all who come from him. The Lord said in Genesis chapter 2 that if Adam would not obey the word of God, there would be a certain consequence. And he said in Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now the Lord told Adam that the consequences of eating of that certain fruit would be death. Specifically, the Lord meant that Adam's spirit would experience spiritual death, which means his spirit would become separated. Here's the division now. It would become separated from God. And that was the moment that humanity's nature, our very spiritual nature, became fallen. That's the term we mean. Fallen from innocence. Fallen into sin. And as a result, we experienced separation from fellowship and in peace with God. We were now at war with God. Enemies of God, the scripture says. Moreover, after Adam ate, God entered into the garden, and when he found what had happened, he responded to Adam's sin with a second act of judgment, which the Bible calls a curse. And that was spoken in Genesis 3, 3.17. God speaking to Adam, he says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because of Adam's sin in eating, 
The Lord now pronounces a curse upon the physical earth. And a curse means, in scriptural terms, it means to condemn something to destruction. So a curse impacts the whole planet. But by the same token, that curse impacts everything that comes from the planet. And if you go back and look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you discover that among the things that come from the earth are all the plants. In day 3, he made all the green things to sprout from the earth, to come out of the ground. Also, the animals. In chapter 2, it says he made all the animals from the dirt, like clay again. And of course, the human body, Adam's body, was made from dirt. And woman's body came out of Adam's body, so her origins are ultimately dirt as well. All these things came from the ground. So all of them, having their origins in the ground, are under a sentence of destruction from the curse that God spoke in the garden. That's why your plants die, particularly in my house. That's why animals kill one another. That's why they grow old and die. That's why the human body grows old and dies eventually. All these things are a result of the curse. And in fact, one day, Scripture says, even the earth itself, our planet, will be destroyed by God as a result of this curse. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is the effect of a curse, friends. There's no recovery from a curse. A curse is a one-way trip. When God speaks His word concerning something, He does not change His mind, and His word will not go out and return to Him empty, unaccomplished. So once he said it, it's done. And so we live in a world that's fallen, that's due to be destroyed one day and replaced, thankfully. But our bodies are under the same curse. Animals die, plants die, you see it all around you. And without the counsel of Scripture, well, you just take it for granted. Or you believe the lies that the world makes up to explain it to themselves. But Scripture says it's all for the result of sin. Meanwhile, the earth and then all that it contains exists today under the weight of under the burden of this curse. The entire creation, Scripture says, is longing to be restored, to be brought back together in peace with God. As if it has a nature of its own that recognizes it's in need of godly repair. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 8.18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, notice this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see Paul referring back to the curse of the garden? He says even the, the planet, in a sense, groans under the weight of this curse, longing to be freed from it one day. All of this is the consequence of a division that happened because one man ate, one man disobeyed. So as a result of the disobedience of Adam to the word of God, the spirit of men, of mankind, of human beings, was separated from God, and the physical creation itself fell into judgment, separated from peace from God, all of us being cast into darkness, spiritually speaking, enslaved to the same enemy who had conspired to bring us down, but we learned last week that the grace of God in Christ has freed us from slavery to that enemy. So friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in the gospel, you have now been born again, your spirit is made new again, it has been reconciled to God, you are at peace with God by your faith in Christ. 
And so for the part of you that fell, the spirit part of you, that's been repaired. That's been summed back up, if you will. Reunited with God. The blood of the cross has purchased you back from the enemy. So by faith, we have one thing restored already. One thing summed up. Your spirit. But Paul has said, God's grace in Christ accomplishes far more than that. He's going to sum up everything on earth and in heaven eventually. So now we understand what was divided, all the various things that have come from the sin of Adam. Well, now let's just walk back through them. Let's understand how they're summed up again in Christ. One day he's going to reunite that spirit you have in you with a new body. Getting rid of the old one that is still with us today. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So the Bible calls this day we're waiting for the resurrection. Some refer to it as the rapture for the church. This is a day we will receive a glorified, sinless body in which we can live forever in peace with God because it will have no sin in it. In that day, Christ will accomplish the summing up of your body to your spirit. The reuniting of a new spirit with a sinless, eternal body. Hallelujah, right? We're waiting for that day. But there's more. Later... In the kingdom on earth in which we will enjoy this life of our sinless body, the Lord will return the animal kingdom to the way that it once existed. Isaiah speaks about this in a couple of places, but one example, Isaiah 65, 17, he says, God speaking through him, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And then in verse 25 he says, The wolf and the lamb will graze together. Hear that? The wolf and the lamb will graze together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So according to Isaiah, in this coming kingdom that we will live in, The animal kingdom will include animals. By the way, that's a nice little detail all by itself, right? Those of you who are worried if you weren't going to have animals in the kingdom, you're going to have animals in the kingdom. But it gets better than that. If you like cats, you can have a lion. You don't just have to call your fuzzy little tabby lion. You can actually have one. Because in that coming day, I'm not exaggerating, in that day, the animal kingdom will be restored back to its original state before the curse. And what was the original state of animals? Well, you go back and read Genesis chapter 2, and it says explicitly that God gave every green plant for all the animals to eat. That is to say, all animals are vegetarians. You might wonder, well, why is that necessary? Why is that even important? Well, friends, before an animal can eat another animal, what must happen to the animal that's going to be eaten? It's got to die. If not beforehand, certainly during the process, it's going to die. And death is the result of sin. It is not the natural course. So before the sin of Adam, the world had animals in it. Those animals were not dying. Nothing was dying. And so they only ate plants. And as a result, the summing up of the animal kingdom is a returning of the animal kingdom back to the state that it once had. You know, in this case, he gives the example of a wolf and a lamb. I assure you that today, if you put a wolf and a lamb within 10 feet of each other, one of them will be grazing for a short time. The other one will be doing something else. In the future, they won't have any interest. There will be no predator-prey relationships. And for the same reason, he says, they'll do no evil or harm to man. 
So by the grace of God, we will live in harmony and peace with them. They will live in harmony and peace with each other. That is the summing up of the animal kingdom. But even more, the Lord will, by His grace, reconcile the fallen earth to Himself by eliminating the curse on the earth. In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible describes the future heavens and earth that will eventually come to replace the one we know today. And in describing that future earth, the Bible says this in Revelation 21, verse 1. John, the apostle, writes, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then in chapter 22, verse 3, he says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So John wrote that in this future world, there's no longer a curse. He didn't say there will no longer be cursing. It's not like we get rid of all the sailors. He's saying there's no longer going to be a curse. He's referring specifically to the curse of Genesis chapter 3, the one we just read about. That is, the curse that has driven the world into this cycle of death is gone for sin itself. The source of it is gone. And now the creation, having been restored back to essentially the state of the Garden of Eden, there is nothing to cause harm anymore for anyone. How did Christ accomplish this work? How is this grace working? How is he doing this summing up process? Well, in Galatians, Paul says that as he hung on the cross, Jesus literally took the curse upon himself as he died. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You remember Jesus hung on a, a tree. Now you may think, well, I don't remember a tree in the story, but of course the Bible speaking here is the source of the cross, that is the wood. He hung on the wood of a tree in the form of a cross, and in doing so he took upon himself the curse for all creation. And then having paid the price of the curse, then Christ is now free to restore the earth from the effects of the curse. Much like he's done for us individually, having paid our price for sin as well. He summed up your spirit, that is, he restored you in peace to Christ. He summed up your body, that is, he took your body out of the curse of death, gave you a new body. He summed up the animal kingdom. The physical earth will have to be fixed. He'll do that too. Yet, friends, there is still another way that he sums up everything in his grace. God is going to use Christ to deal with sin, to deal with the source of it, beginning with the author of it, who is Satan himself, and the death that the devil produces. Now, the idea of summing up goes beyond merely saying fixing things. It also implies bringing things to resolution, bringing things to their proper conclusion. And in a day to come, the Lord will, so to speak, sum up Satan. Revelation 20, verse 10 it says that the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 15:25, For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that is abolished is death. So the Lord has no plan to redeem Satan. The Bible says that the Lord does not give help to fallen angels. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 2. Instead, the Lord is going to sum up the problem of evil by bringing Satan to the judgment he justly deserves. That's a summing up also, in the sense of putting a completion to it, an end to it. And he sums up things in heaven and on earth in this sense, because the enemy's fall did not begin on earth. It began in heaven. 
when he was in the tabernacle in the heavenly realm. You can read about this in Ezekiel 28. When he fell, when the enemy fell, he defiled the heavenly tabernacle. He was cast down to the earth, where he then brought sin into the garden. But Christ has to address both. He has to address the sin that Satan brought onto the earth. We've talked about that. But he also has to address the defiling of the heavenly tabernacle that Satan created when he fell. And Hebrews says this is how it happened. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Notice that? A tabernacle that's not made of human hands, it's not on the earth, it's not of this creation, i.e., it's in heaven, the heavenly tabernacle. So Christ entered into that place, and then verse 12, it goes on, and not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What the writer of Hebrews is explaining is that Christ ascended into the heavenlies in his body, having resurrected from the grave. And the blood that he had in his body was used in some fashion to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle, sprinkled on the mercy seat, just like the high priest on earth did with bull blood in the tabernacle on earth. But Christ used his own blood. Which is why, as a little aside, he told Mary Magdalene she could not touch him when she saw him at the tomb, for he said, I have not yet ascended to my father. He was clean. She was unclean. She could not touch the clean sacrifice before that sacrifice had been finished in the heavenly. So until he could ascend and apply his blood, no one could touch him. He did that obviously somewhere between the moment of Mary Magdalene and his appearance the next day to Thomas. So he went up and came back down, according to Hebrews, in order to apply the blood in the tabernacle. So he sums up the problem of Satan, putting Satan to judgment and cleaning up Satan's mess with his own blood. And yet there's another one. Christ sums up those who belong to the enemy and die in unbelief. In Revelation 20.12 we read this, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's not a pleasant thing to think about, but it's the truth of Scripture that after the kingdom age ends, the Lord's going to set up a big trial, if you will, a trial of unbelieving humanity. And all those who have died in unbelief, beginning with Cain and moving through all of history that follows, all of those unbelievers will be resurrected, put in new bodies, and set before the court of Christ who will judge them. And just like their father, the devil, they will receive the just penalty for sin, which is eternal separation from God, the promised penalty of the garden. That's what Paul means when he says that Christ is summing up everything. He's putting a conclusion on everything. Nothing will be left undone. And all of this, friends, is grace to us. Even these last two unpleasant parts, the thought of judgment for the enemy or the thought of judgment for those who die in unbelief, even those things are grace to you and I, for it means that the effects of sin are being put away with as well. The ongoing destruction and devastation of sin is absent our experience from that day forward. And, of course, at the thought of these things, we should just have all the more sense of urgency and desire to reach the world for Christ. That's a, that's a natural and healthy response to these truths. But 
The reality is not all will be reached for whatever reason. And so yet there will be the need for Christ to sum these things up. God reconciling the guilty to their just end and the unbeliever to his or her just condemnation. Revelation 21.7 says this, He who overcomes, speaking of the believers, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So that's what Paul means when he says summing up. That there is yet work to be done. And it's going to be done by Christ. And it's an act of grace to each of you that these things are still in our future. Can you imagine living in the life you have now? That is, having been saved, having been saved from the penalty of your sin, and yet having also been condemned to continue in a body of sin. I mean, the struggles that you and I know every day, and our desire to do the right thing, but our inabilities sometimes to do... Do you want that forever? Do you imagine that's actually an option? I mean, in the sense that God could do anything, then theoretically that would have been an option. He could have said, I'll save them from the penalty of sin, but we're just going to leave them the way they are the rest of the time. Well, no, that's not what we want. By the grace of God, he didn't do that. He said, well, we can go better than that. We can give them a new body. Oh, we can do better than that. We can give them back the animal world. We can give them back the whole creation. We can make everything right. The grace of God. Then in verses 11 and 12, Paul gives us one more way in which Christ's grace sums up everything on earth. And it's a very interesting one, one you may not have seen coming. He says, By Christ's obedience to the law and his death on the cross, Christ reconciles or sums up Jew and Gentile together. That's what he's talking about here. I want you to notice with me in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, We, we also obtained our inheritance. I trust you remember our lesson earlier from this book on our teaching about what the Father does for us in grace and how He chooses us for an eternal inheritance and and how that inheritance was made possible in Christ's death. That is, we were chosen to be part of Christ's last will and testament so that we would receive a part of His inheritance. Do you remember this, I hope? But in this context, Paul's talking about something a little different, even though he uses some of the same words, like inheritance or predestined. He uses the pronoun we in these verses in a meaningful way. He's speaking of a group of people, we, of which he was obviously a part, but which the readers in Ephesus were not a part of. And how do I know that they're not considered part of the we? Well, look just a little further down, verses 13 and 14. We're not going to cover 13 and 14 today. But just notice, Paul switches to the plural you in those verses. He contrasts we and you in this section. So we have to see, what is he talking about then in terms of Christ summing up? What is he talking about we versus you here? Paul's comparing the grace that Christ poured out on the Jewish people, we, to the grace that is poured out to the Gentile church, you. So it's a comparison between the Jewish people prior to Christ's coming and the Gentile church, largely Gentile church, after Christ's coming. We and you. So Paul says the Jews were predestined by the Father to be God's chosen people. By his promises to Abraham, the Lord granted the Jewish people a special inheritance in the promised land and in a future kingdom. These are the things that God made available to a certain group of people through promises he gave to a certain man. He picked a guy, he picked the people, he made it all for himself. In that sense, he predestined the we to this inheritance. 
And if you go back and you look in Genesis at the story of the creation of the Jewish people and of the covenants that were given to them, you can see this is a special manifestation of God's grace to that group of people. He promised them they would have a Messiah. He promised them that He would dwell among them. He promised them that they would live forever in this special inheritance that we call the Promised Land. That outpouring of grace separated Israel from the rest of the nations, from the rest of humanity. They were called out. And they were to be special and distinct from all the other peoples on the earth. Paul says later in the same letter that Israel's predestination as God's chosen people meant that all the Gentile nations were, by definition, strangers to the promises, strangers to these covenants, outside the grace of God. But that's why Paul says in verse 12 that the Jewish people were then the first to hope in Christ. They were hoping in a Messiah long before Gentiles even knew what a Messiah was or why they might want one. In that sense, the Jewish people were the first to be hoping in these things, to receive the first opportunity to praise Christ for His coming glory. And Christ's grace made this possible. And yet, Christ is going to sum up this divide as well. He's going to sum up this division. He's going to bring Jew and Gentile together. John says in his Gospel that when Jesus died, He was dying purposely to bring together all His children from across the earth. In John chapter 11, verse 51, John says, Now, He did not say this, speaking of Jesus' death, He did not say this on His own initiative, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that He might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So the grace of Christ resulted in the divide between Jew and Gentile dissolving in the plan of salvation in Christ. Now, all are being saved according to the same grace that Christ offers. And in that way, he's summing up the two groups into one. The Jewish people were promised a special inheritance that they could enjoy forever with the presence of God tabernacling among them. That was the promise God gave to Israel. That promise is not fully realized until the kingdom when we see the kingdom temple and the Jewish people living in peace in their land. That's when we see this promise fulfilled. But in the meantime, during the Old Testament days, Old Testament saints in Israel did receive a bit of a down payment on that promise. The down payment they got was, first, they were permitted to live in Canaan for a time. Now, Canaan is the location in which this promised land eventually comes to Israel. But the Canaan of old times was not the fulfillment of that kingdom. It didn't meet the border requirements that God gave. It certainly wasn't a place they lived in peace, and they didn't hold on to it eternally. So what they had was not the fullness of it, it was a temporary down payment on it, if you will. And similarly, their promise to tabernacle with God, but the tabernacling they knew in the Old Testament was of the Shekinah glory of God in the temple on earth, but only for a time. And only certain people in the Jewish people could ever see it and experience it. It was a down payment on God's tabernacling. God in the kingdom, though, will give the fullness of His presence. He will live in the temple in His full form, eternally, for Israel. Friends, the same thing is true for the Gentiles. That is to say, we have a comparable set of blessings for us that are Christ's outpouring to us, Christ's grace to us, and in that way, a summing of us up with the Jewish people. For example, we also have the promise that we will one day dwell with Him in that coming kingdom. But we also have a down payment of it right now, do we not? What's the down payment we've received of that tabernacling with God? We have the Holy Spirit. And in fact, that's the next thing Paul talks about in verses 13 and 14. 
And we also have the inheritance. That is to say, we have an inheritance waiting for us in that kingdom, but we get a down payment on that as well. We get the gifts of the Spirit given to us as a temporary spiritual down payment on what we're going to see in a physical way later. Those blessings have come to us as well. So Christ's grace sums up the experience of the Old Testament saint with the experience of the New Testament saint into one church today and in eternity into one kingdom. That's why Paul says that the Jews, we, as he puts it, were just the first to hope in Christ, the first to praise Him, not the only and not the last. Are you beginning to appreciate the magnitude of God's grace for you in Christ? How far it goes beyond the cross? It all begins with His work of dying, no doubt. But He has a plan of restoration and reconciliation that literally boggles your mind if you think about it. He addresses your sinful spirit, your corrupt body, your fallen world, and your needs into eternity. And He has a plan to make all these things new. And even in the meantime, He is moved into your life, managing you by His wisdom. He is speaking to you by the counsel of His will. And as we'll learn next week, He has put a down payment on all these things in the sealing of you by His Spirit so that He is actually living in you in the meantime. Truly, friends, wouldn't you agree, His grace is amazing. Let's go to prayer. Thank you, Father, for amazing grace in your Son. That even on our worst days, Father, we can take great comfort in knowing that there's a plan underway of which we've seen truly just a part, a small part even. And yet we have the promise of it all and we have the assurance that that promise will come to pass. And we thank you, Father, for that grace, an unmerited show of your favor in our lives. Father, I pray that in each of our hearts this awareness would just grow in us a desire to serve you all the more for what you've done already for us. That we would respond in love and obedience because, Father, what else could we do in the face of such an outpouring of grace? And as grace is magnified in our understanding and in our hearts, may it be magnified in our life so that we go about representing you to the world on the matter of grace, showing love where others would show hate, showing charity where others would make demands, being forgiving where the world would demand vengeance. Let us be grace, Father, in the lives of others so that we can reflect Christ better and use it, Father, to continue growing your kingdom through our hands and our feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.